Section 7 of The Life of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlemagne by Notger the Stammerer. Translated by Arthur James Grant. Section 7. Book 2. Part 3. Now Louis, king and emperor of all Germany, of the provinces of Rhetia and of ancient Francia, of Saxony too and of Thuringia, of the provinces of Pannonia and of all northern nations, was of large build and handsome. His eyes sparkled like the stars. His voice was clear and manly. His wisdom was quite out of the common and he added to it by constantly applying his singularly acute intellect to the study of the scriptures. He showed wonderful quickness, too, in anticipating or overcoming the plots of his enemies, in bringing to an end the quarrels of his subjects, and in procuring every kind of advantage for those who were loyal to him. More even than his ancestors, he came to be a terror to all the heathen that stood round about his kingdom. And he deserved his good fortune, for he never defiled his tongue by condemning, nor his hands by shedding Christian blood, except once only, and then upon the most absolute necessity. But I dare not tell that story until I see a little Lewis or a Charles standing by your side. After that one slaughter, nothing could induce him to condemn any one to death. But the measure of compulsion which he used against those who were accused of disloyalty or plots was merely this. He deprived them of office, and no new circumstance and no length of time could then soften his heart so as to restore them to the former rank. He surpassed all men in his zealous devotion to prayer, religious fasting, and the care of the service of God. And like St. Martin, whatever he was doing, he prayed to God as though he were face to face with him. On certain days he abstained from flesh and all pleasant food. At the time of litanies he used to follow the cross with unshod feet from his palace as far as the cathedral, or if he were at Regensburg, as far as the church of St. Hemerim. In other places he followed the customs of those whom he was with, he built new oratories of wonderful workmanship at Frankfurt and Regensburg. In the latter place, as stones were wanting to complete the immense fabric, he ordered the walls of the city to be pulled down, and in certain holes in the wall they found bones of men long dead, wrapped in so much gold that not only did it serve to decorate the cathedral, but also he was able to furnish certain books that were written on the subject with cases of the same material nearly a finger thick. No clerk could stay with him or even come into his presence unless he were able to read and chant. He despised monks who broke their vows and loved those who kept them. He was so full of sweet-tempered mirth that, if anyone came to him in a morose mood, merely to see him and exchange a few words with him, sent the visitor away with raised spirits. If anything evil or foolish was done in his presence, or if it happened that he were told of it, 
then a single glance of his eyes was enough to check everything, so that what is written of the eternal judge who sees the hearts of men, that is to say, a king that sitteth on the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes, might be fairly said to have begun in him, beyond what is usually granted to mortals. All this I have written by way of digression, hoping that, if life lasts and heaven is propitious, I may in time to come write much more concerning him. But I must return to my subject. While Charles was detained for a little at Aix by the arrival of many visitors, and the hostility of the unconquered Saxons, and the robbery and piracy of the Northmen and Moors, and while the war against the Huns was being conducted by his son Pippin, the barbarous nations of the north attacked Noricum and eastern Frankland, and ravaged a great part of it. When he heard of this, he humiliated them in his own person, and he gave orders that all the boys and children of the invaders should be measured with the sword, and if any one exceeded that measurement, he should be shortened by a head. This incident led to another, much greater and more important. For when your imperial majesty's most holy grandfather departed from life, certain giants, like to those who, scripture tells us, were begotten by the sons of Seth from the daughters of Cain, blown up with the spirit of pride, and doubtless like to those who said, What part have we in David, and what inheritance in the son of Esau? These mighty men, I say, despised the most worthy children of Charles, and each tried to seize for himself the command in the kingdom, and themselves to wear the crown. Then some of the middle class were moved by the inspiration of God to declare that, as the renowned Emperor Charles had once measured the enemies of Christianity with the sword, so, as long as any of his progeny could be found of the length of a sword, he must rule over the Franks and over all Germany too. Thereupon that devilish group of conspirators was, as it were, struck with a thunderbolt and scattered in all directions. But after conquering the external foe, Charles was attacked at the hands of his own people in a remarkable but unavailing plot for on his return from the Slavs into his own kingdom he was nearly captured and put to death by his son, whom a concubine had borne to him, and who had been called by his mother by the ill-omened name of the most glorious Pippin. The plot was found out in the following manner. This son of Charles had been plotting the death of the emperor with a gathering of nobles in the church of St. Peter, and when their debate was over, fearful of every shadow, he ordered search to be made to see whether any one was hidden in the corners or under the altar. And behold, they found, as they feared, a clerk hidden under the altar. They seized him, and made him swear that he would not reveal their conspiracy. To save his life he dared not refuse to take the oath which they dictated. But when they were gone, he held his wicked oath of small account, and at once hurried to the palace. With the greatest difficulty he passed through the seven bolted gates, and coming at length to the emperor's chamber, knocked upon the door. The most vigilant Charles fell into a great astonishment, 
as to who it was that dared to disturb him at that time of night. He, however, ordered the women, who followed in his train to wait upon the queen and the princesses, to go out and see who was at the door and what he wanted. When they went out and found the wretched creature, they bolted the door in his face, and then, bursting with laughter, and stuffing their dresses into their mouths, they tried to hide themselves in the corners of the apartments. But that most wise emperor, whose notice nothing under heaven could escape, asked straightly of the women who it was and what he wanted. When he was told that it was a smooth-faced, silly, half-mad knave, dressed only in shirt and drawers, who demanded an audience without delay, Charles ordered him to be admitted. Then he fell at the emperor's feet and showed all that had happened. So all the conspirators, entirely unsuspicious of danger, were seized before the third hour of the day and most deservedly condemned to exile or some other form of punishment. Pippin himself, a dwarf and a hunchback, was cruelly scourged, tonsured, and sent for some time as a punishment to the monastery of St. Gall, the poorest, it was judged, and the straightest in all the emperor's broad dominions. A short time afterwards, some of the Frankish nobles sought to do violence to their king. Charles was well aware of their intentions, and yet did not wish to destroy them, because, if only they were loyal, they might be a great protection to all Christian men. So he sent messengers to this Pippin and asked him his advice in the matter. They found him in the monastery garden, in the company of the elder brothers, for the younger ones were detained by their work. He was digging up nettles and other weeds with a hoe, that the useful herbs might grow more vigorously. When they had explained to him the reason of their coming, he sighed deeply, from the very bottom of his heart, and said in reply, If Charles thought my advice worth having, he would not have treated me so harshly. I give him no advice. Go, tell him what you found me doing. They were afraid to go back to the dreaded emperor without a definite answer, and again and again asked him what message they should convey to their lord. Then at last he said in anger, I will send him no message except what I am doing. I am digging up the useless growths in order that the valuable herbs may be able to develop more freely. So they went away sorrowfully, thinking that they were bringing back a foolish answer. When the emperor asked them upon their arrival what answer they were bringing, they answered sorrowfully that after all their labor and long journeying they could get no definite information at all. Then that most wise king asked them carefully where they had found Pippin, what he was doing, and what answer he had given them, and they said, We found him sitting on a rustic seat turning over the vegetable garden with a hoe. When we told him the cause of our journey, we could extract no other reply than this, even by the greatest entreaties. I give no message except what I am doing. I am digging up the useless growths in order that the valuable herbs may be able to develop more freely. When he heard this, the emperor, not lacking in cunning and mighty in wisdom, rubbed his ears and blew out his nostrils and said, 
my good vassals, you have brought back a very reasonable answer. So while the messengers were fearing that they might be in peril of their lives, Charles was able to divine the real meaning of the words. He took all those plotters away from the land of the living, and so gave to his loyal subjects room to grow and spread, which had previously been occupied by those unprofitable servants. One of his enemies, who had chosen as his part of the spoil of the empire the highest hill in France and all that could be seen from it, was, by Charles's orders, hanged upon a high gallows on that very hill. But he bade his bastard son Pippin choose the manner of life that most pleased him. Upon this permission being given him, he chose a post in a monastery, then most noble, but now destroyed. Who is there that does not know the manner of its destruction? But I will not tell the story of its fall until I see your little Bernard with a sword girt upon his thigh. The magnanimous Charles was often angry because he was urged to go out and fight against foreign nations when one of his nobles might have accomplished the task. I can prove this from the action of one of my own neighbors. There was a man of Thurgau of the name of Aishere, who, as his name implies, was a great part of a terrible army, and so tall that you might have thought him sprung from the race of Anak if they had not lived so long ago and so far away. Whenever he came to the river Dura and found it swollen and foaming with the torrents from the mountains, and could not force his huge charger to enter the stream, though stream I must not call it, but hardly melted ice, then he would seize the reins and force his horse to swim through behind him, saying, Nay, by St. Gaul, you must come, whether you like it or not. Well, this man followed the emperor and mowed down the Bohemians and Wiltses and Avars as a man might mow down hay, and spitted them on his spear like birds. When he came home, the sluggards asked him how he had got on in the country of the Winides, and he, contemptuous of some and angry with others, replied, Why should I have been bothered with those tadpoles? I use sometimes to spit seven or eight or nine of them on my spear and carry them about with me squealing in their gibberish. My lord King and I ought never to have been asked to weary ourselves in fighting against worms like those. Now, about the same time that the emperor was putting the finishing touch to the war with the Huns and had received the surrender of the races that I have just mentioned, the Northmen left their homes and disquieted greatly the Gauls and the Franks. Then the unconquered Charles returned and tried to attack them by land in their own homes by a march through difficult and unknown country. But whether it was that the providence of God prevented it in order that, as the scripture says, he might make trial of Israel, or whether it was that our sins stood in the way, all his efforts came to nothing. One night, to the serious discomfort of the whole army, it was calculated that fifty yoke of oxen belonging to one abbey had died of a sudden disease. Afterwards, when Charles was making a prolonged journey through his vast empire, Gottfried, king of the Northmen, encouraged by his absence, invaded the territory of the Frankish kingdom and chose the district of the Moselle for his home. 
but Gottfried's own son, whose mother he had just put away and taken to himself a new wife, caught him, while he was pulling off his hawk from a heron, and cut him through the middle with his sword. Then, as happened of old when Holofernes was slain, none of the Northmen dare trust any longer in his courage or his arms, but all sought safety in flight. And thus the Franks were freed without their own effort, that they might not after the fashion of Israel boast themselves against God. Then Charles, the unconquered and the invincible, glorified God for his judgment, but complained bitterly that any of the Northmen had escaped because of his absence. Ah, woe is me, he said, that I was not thought worthy to see my Christian hands dabbling in the blood of those dog-headed fiends. End of section 7